Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast, this week's topic. We're going to talk about strange things that 401k plan sponsors should be aware of. Some, you know, weird things that go on in the retirement plan business that we can talk about and things that, you know, plan sponsors really, you know, don't think about. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll get into trouble with some of the things I say. But, of course, first things first. That's for site.com for further information on all our live events. Oakland, uh, April 14th. Uh, Detroit, May the 3rd, will be open soon for registration. Then we'll finally book uh, Texas, um, the uh, virtual event, January 26th, 27th. $2.23 to be a part of it. Uh, and again, like I said, go sign up at site.com for further information. Um, in terms of strange things, um, right off the top of, you know, I, I think the idea for this piece um, and the uh, future article was the idea that um, advisor told me and, and asked whether it was appropriate for an audit to be based on a percentage of assets. So the auditor charged the plan sponsor an audit based on the based on a percentage of assets rather than a flat fee. And uh, the advisor asked me if it was appropriate. And to me, I thought it was really odd. Uh, I don't, never heard of an auditor charging uh, an asset-based fee. Um, you know, and it really, you know, delved into the topic of what is reasonable. Um, and in my opinion, I didn't think it was appropriate. Um, obviously if a percentage of assets, um, you know, there is a, a, a specific dollar amount after you calculate it, but, uh, in my opinion, I think anyone charging an asset based fee has to be related to somebody who's actually handling plan assets. Um, and that means really the only two people that I think should charge an asset-based fee are financial advisors and planned fiduciaries. Um, you know, and, and there's a question of whether an asset-based fee is still appropriate. We have a lot of advisors out there, or I, you know, I know quite a few, they charge a flat fee. Um, and, you know, believe me, I, I, I always, you know, question about appropriateness. I am an attorney. Worked for a couple of years in law firms that, you know, bill on a billable hour. And I think that the billable hour, to me, is prone for abuse. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, my practice, I, I pretty much charge on a flat fee basis. I, I like the idea. It's transparent. It's easy for the plan sponsor to understand. Um, I just had a client want me to draft a notice um, on a MAP funding change and whatnot. And, you know, before they hired me, they wanted to know the appropriateness of the fee. And I said, you know, boom, this is a flat fee. Um, there's, there's, you know, you, you see what, what you see is what you get. But, you know, I, 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 just, I just feel like, for example, I, many years ago, there was a TPA in my area. They're still around. I, I don't deal with them much because all the people that I know and cared about kind of left because they got bought out. But I always had a debate with a buddy of mine who was a salesperson for a TPA, and they charge an asset-based fee. 
and they weren't they serve in any fiduciary capacity whatsoever. And I asked them, John. I said, "Listen, uh, what's the difference between what what additional costs do you have uh, when you handle a thousand dollar head, you know, ten million dollar plan versus a thousand dollar head, you know, hundred million dollar plan?" And in my opinion, there is no difference. The costs are the same. But you know, people will say, "Well, you know, they should you know, the hard, handling larger plan. It should be an asset-based fee because it's more liability and blah blah blah." But you know, when you look at potential liability, there is a reason why we have malpractice and errors emissions policies out there. If there's a greater cost for plan providers to handle plans with larger assets, then they should just raise their fees. Um, Tying a fee, in my mind, to a percentage of assets just doesn't make sense for a plan auditor and other professionals. You know, I charge one fee when I have a plan document to do. I, I did a whole bunch of cycle three restatements this past summer before the, the deadline. And I, I wrote, I draft about 20 plans for a certain TPA who's finally paying me, um, which is great. It's going to be a very, very nice uh, December uh, in terms of uh, receiving uh, payments. But I didn't go and ask uh, the TPA. Uh, by the way, how much assets in the uh, you know how, how much assets in the plan? Maybe I could charge based on assets. I, I I don't I don't I don't work that way. I don't charge people extra or, or percentage of assets because they have more assets. In the end, I mean the deciding factor is reasonableness. And to me, getting charged for an audit when the asset-based fee doesn't pass the smell test with me and I would have still an issue to this day with TPAs that charge an asset-based fee. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. They're not fiduciaries. I think if you're a fiduciary and you're handling plan assets, then you can charge. And I am a plan fiduciary, 316, uh, 316 um, PPP, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, I charge more for smaller plans uh, than I do for larger plans. But, you know... Uh, my fees uh, have suffered as a result of the stock market, so you know it is what it is. But I just think that you know for certain plan providers, it's just inappropriate. Next, um, a strange thing is I, I always find the deconversion fee um, a strange concept. Changing TPAs is like moving. I don't recommend it. It's something I really dread. I'm sitting here in my house and just looking around and, you know, I, I think, you know, it's quite possible when my daughter graduates high school, we'll be moving out of here out of Long Island and settling somewhere else. And it, that's a year and a half away. And I already dread thinking about it. Um, just the idea of, I don't know why it's traumatic, maybe because I, I didn't do many moves in my, 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 my childhood, whatever. I don't remember when, you know, I moved from an apartment to a home when I was two. I don't remember that. And, uh, moving out of the next house after 23 years, that wasn't a lot of fun. And uh, it's gonna not going to be fun moving out of here. And, and I, I think the change of TPAs is, is, is the same kind of way. Uh, going from one CPA to another, um, it's not fun. I don't necessarily recommend it, but obviously there's some situations that have to be done. But when plan sponsors move from one CPA to another... Uh, it brings up one of the dirty secrets in the retirement plan business, in my opinion, that I think eventually the Department of Labor is going to uh, deal with, and that's the deconversion fee. 
Now, if you change other providers in your life, you know, listen, hire fire lawyers, doctors, or accountants. Uh, when I change doctors, we have in the midst of changing dentists because of the insurance, uh, my dentist isn't going to charge me a deconversion fee. Um, yet retirement plan custom in the retirement plan business is that TPAs, being you're relieved of their duty, have the right to charge a deconversion fee. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, 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 to me, getting fired is part of the business, and uh, you know, I think it should be part of the cost in the services. But somehow, TPAs feel they can slap on a deconversion fee. Uh, I'm not going to argue about the customer time plan business. It is what it is. I'm not going to be Don Quixote over here. Um, the problem with the deconversion fee, as I saw with a certain. Uh, TPA uh, based out of New Jersey is that most of the time it's not transparent. It, it says we have the right to, to, to um, you know, charge a deconversion fee and whatnot. And uh, it's not if it's not specified in the contract, that's a problem. Um, you know, I had an issue with a plan that you know I'm the plan fiduciary at. And, uh, you know, this, this thing has been going on for a year and a half with the Department of Labor investigating it because there's certain plan sponsors that were in the same boat in terms of high deconversion fees and um, costs for charging valuations of 5500s that the plan sponsors, uh, the TPAs were paid for. Uh, I worked for TPAs for 10 years, so I kind of know kind of the nonsense about, audit, uh, about deconversion fees. I worked at one TPA where essentially um, we were we were silent deconversion fee, and um, the fee was eventually decided by a co-owner on a whim, which was dependent on the relationship they had with the advisor on the plan. So, if you worked with uh, so and so in Tennessee, and he brought you plans over, and one of their clients wants to leave, well, you're going to be less than somebody who has one advisor that only has one plan with us. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously an advisor, again, who had multiple plans with us, uh, their clients who fired us would get a break on the deconversion fee. Then again, somebody who was an advisor in a plan that had little business, um, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, I bring up the situation with my, um, uh, with my plan where again, uh, we chart, we were charged, you know, uh, some crazy amount of money for, uh, I want to say, the, the TPA made about $150,000 on us. Uh, services were based on an annual period. We paid the annual fee. They got terminated at the end of the year. They wanted to charge us extra for the July, you know, Val and 5500 that we already paid for, and they wanted to charge us like 70, 80 grand. We filed the complaint with the DOL. You know, I, I think that that's one of those situations. I, I know somebody in the, uh, with one of the large retirement plan organizations out there, and he said to me, most billing disputes surround uh, the termination of a TPA. So this nonsense of deconversion fees and um, valuations at 5,500s after date of termination is a big problem. And I really believe that uh, the Department of Labor is certainly going to take a crack at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting problem that I think plan sponsors need to be aware of. Uh, 
I think that, you know, if their deconversion fees aren't specified and you have to fire the TPA, there is room for negotiation, in my opinion, because I believe that all fees have to be transparent and explicit and bear some rationale. And a lot of these deconversion fees are not based on rationale. They're just, they're just punitive. So uh, that's, that's my <laughs> second controversial topic. The third one, promoting annuities as a payment option. I always had uh, problems with annuities. I always had problems with insurance in retirement plans. Just because as a TPA, I work with a lot of, um, you know, not so good uh, insurance people who just wanted to sell the biggest policy they can. And I, I don't like the idea that we're going to push annuities as a payment option within a 401k plan. It just gives more the plan sponsor more work to do. To me, until the DOL and IRS says it's compulsory, I would tell a plan sponsor, don't bother with annuities. Lump sum, installments, uh, I don't even like installments. Lump sum, partial withdrawals. If people want to buy an annuity, let them. You don't need the headache of trying to go find an annuity uh, seller and all that stuff. Um Plant sponsors have enough work and enough things on their plate that they don't need to be going out and trying to buy annuities for plant sponsors, that, uh, plant participants. That's my, you know, my, my issue. I don't want to talk about. I, I can't deal with retirement glide path and blah 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 and life expectancy and all that stuff. You're a former participant. You got to count balance. Adios. Goodbye. Farewell. Avida Zane. That's it. I, I I don't need the plan sponsor jumping through more hoops. That's just my my two cents. Um, again, if a participant wants to buy an annuity, I mean, my grandmother was big on annuities. My mother-in-law was big on annuities. If you want annuities, go out and buy one. Next, uh, plan sponsors should be aware of cyber theft is a bigger and bigger deal. Um, again, I started the time plan business in 1998. Everything that was done by paper or telephone. Uh, yes, the World Wide Web was a thing. Uh, I can remember, you know, my $7 a month I was paying on AOL because it, it wasn't unlimited in those days. And uh, the modem was slow as molasses. Uh, we didn't have websites until 2000 for the TPA that I worked at. And all it did was give you account balance. But now you can do anything you want almost uh, on a website. You could change your investments. You can ask for a distribution. You could do a whole bunch of things you could never do 25 years ago. And with that kind of ease, makes it easier for the cyber thieves to prey on plan participants. And, uh, you know, the easier it is for a participant to access their 401k account, it just makes it easier for the cyber criminals out there to steal. And, um, you know, there have been situations where the TPA and plan sponsors are asleep at the wheel and plan participants are, you know, get their assets hacked. Uh, we see that now, even this past week with DraftKings and FanDuel and, and people withdrawing from people's sports book. But it's kind of easy um, at times for these cyber thieves to steal from plan um, participants. And, and if you read the stories, there's a lot of warning signs, you know, new checkbook, you know, check 100 uh, to show an ACH or a check without an address or just all these other things. Obviously, uh, two-way authentication is probably the way to go. 
Um, I think it's important for plan sponsors to, you know, figure out if the plan providers have some sort of cybersecurity policy and uh, are properly insured to avoid a situation uh, in the future. Uh, and it may be wise for a plan sponsor to develop a cybersecurity policy of their own as well to make sure that distributions for plan participants actually go to plan participants until unless, until somebody, uh, as opposed to somebody on the, the dark web, whatever it's called. Last but not least, former and missing, particip missing participants are a giant headache. Uh, in an ideal world, employees who terminate voluntarily and involuntarily would take a distribution of their account balance and be gone. But, you know, we don't live in an ideal world. Uh, if the plan has an involuntary cash-out limit, plan sponsors should certainly go out and contact farm participants and tell them they have their money to take out if it's below the cash-out threshold. If it's above the cash-out threshold, I think it's incessant. Uh, I think it's really, I, I think it's important for the plan sponsor to continually ask the plan participant, the former employee, take the money and leave, you know, that kind of thing. Um, problem is, is obviously uh, people move, people are missing, and all that kind of stuff. Um, the problem with, you know, former employees, you lose track of them. You lose track of providing them with notices and education materials. And um, it, it's, it's a giant headache, and it's not something that I would recommend that's why I think it's always important to follow up with former employees to kind of cajole them to take their money out. And I think it's important that these e-disclosure uh, regs are followed. So if any email from a former employee, you know, gets you know sent back, um, there should be follow up, making sure that they're mailed uh, all the required notices, and um, it, it it should just be something that you know is covered because unfortunately with a lot of plan sponsors we only have the headaches of plan participants and former employees when the plan's terminating and we want to get their money out uh right now i have that situation with a plan when this plan sponsor went out of business about five years ago and now all of a sudden they're making distributing assets it's a problem and i think the last thing a plan sponsor really needs is a liability threat from a former employee because again because of the passive-aggressive nature of people, former employees are going to complain a lot more and a lot easier than somebody who's currently working for you. You know, I worked, uh, I worked uh, on my own. I worked for other people before I went on my own 12 years ago, and there's a reason on my own. And you are always surrounded by these employees who complain about their bosses uh, and do nothing. And of course, I was the one guy to do something. And uh, Again, a former employee has no incentive to keep quiet. Uh, and again, two of the biggest um, Department of Labor investigations I was a part of as on behalf of a plan sponsor dealt with complaints from former employees who thought that they were entitled to some sort of benefit. So it's a giant headache, something that should be avoided. And uh, it's not something that uh, uh, you know should be neglected because uh, again they are they can be a gigantic head headache. Obviously, some plan sponsors have less turnover than others, so it's less of a problem. But it, it's not fun. I mean, one of the first things you know my wife and I would do when we change jobs is get our money and go. Uh, and uh, I think that's important for or for the for uh, uh, plan participants to do that as well. 
So I hope you enjoyed this episode of that 401k podcast. Uh, and of course, go to that 401ksite.com for further information on all our live events. And I hope you tune in next week for another episode and uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, again, uh, we'll have more announcements about the national virtual events. $2.23 to be a part of. And uh, of course, this episode drops after Thanksgiving, but we hope you had a enjoyable Thanksgiving break. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.